and welcome to the F1 Strategy Report for Apex Race Manager, the mobile management simulator. On this week's edition, the Canadian Grand Prix, when is a team order not a team order? And a non-Villeneuve Canadian finally scores some points. That's all to come in this edition of the Strategy Report. My name's Michael Aminato, and yes, getting up at 4am to watch the Canadian Grand Prix in Australia has made me a little bit sick. But if we get over the nasliness of my voice, don't worry about that. I'm joined by a man you might know as the F1 poet on Twitter. His name's Ernie Black. How are you doing? Fantastic. Thanks, Michael. It's been, uh, well, first of all, it's been a very good season, and it's always a good race when we arrive in Canada. I think everybody looks forward to this race, so long as you're in the correct time zone, at very least. But it again delivered. It wasn't all about action, but this was always going to be quite a a solid weekend, I think. Uh, The fan uh, interaction and uh, um, energy is uh, fantastic in the city of Montreal. They really embrace the uh, the city the drivers all tend to like this uh, the circuit and uh, and the city so a lot of people look forward to coming to uh, to Canada for this particular race I'm sure it has something to do with the beer as well <laughs> it's been uh, it's it was a, a nice uh, departure from uh, years gone by where we had uh, little overtaking. Uh, we had a lot of overtaking this year, a real spectacle for the fans. Yeah, it was. And it's a continuation, I think, of, well, yeah, the, the, the theme of for most of the season, I'm going to say 90% of our races so far, have been very solid. Not all of them have been spectacular races, but the season's shaping up really well, despite, and this is more or less what Ross Braun was saying this weekend, the fact that the cars shouldn't be that good at overtaking this year, yet we've got this... Just really punchy field, I guess, still trying to work out exactly how to nail these cars and these tyres, which were the softest ones, again, for the second week in a row brought to Canada. Yeah, they're, uh, they really went uh, soft for us. <laughs> <laughs> um, overall, everyone started on the ultrasofts with the exception of, I think, Magnuson and uh, Verline. The circuit itself is, uh, is green. It's not used for most of the year. really relies on the support races to rubber in and uh, grip is always an issue. This is definitely a circuit you want sticky rubber. Mm -hmm. And it's interesting because these are the same tyres, as I said, we brought to Monaco uh, two weeks ago or the previous round, and there was a lot of trouble there. We had a lot of trouble with those tyres, even though it was quite warm on Sunday. No one seemed to really be able to get them in the correct working range. And while no one really thinks that Monaco is very similar to Canada, obviously one's extremely quick and the other one is less so, the lack of high-energy corners in Canada is kind of similar to Monaco, and so there are a lot of fears that this would happen again and one of the stories of the intervening weeks between these races was Mercedes because they really really struggled with the tyres and the circuit in general in Monaco. Uh, Were you surprised to see them sort of come out and be so effective from Friday really uh, at this race? Not really Uh, because this is a power circuit uh, they Mercedes has serious grunt and you you know that on the on the quick bits of the track they're going to perform uh, most of the corners, as you said, are low energy corners. Uh, therefore, uh, the heavy braking uh, uh, um, probably would test uh, most cars uh, in terms of uh, their braking capability. Uh, I think um, Mercedes has, has very good uh, uh, brakes and uh, they're able to keep them generally cool or maybe even cooler than, than others. And uh, I wasn't surprised to see them quick. I honestly thought uh, Ferrari might have had uh, the upper hand uh, this past weekend, but um, glad to see that the, the, the times were 
were very close. Mm-hmm. Especially considering, well, it's still early in the championship and they're more or less, well, they, now they are the same number of wins each, I think, uh, between Vettel and Hamilton. In any case, that the momentum swung a little bit back and we've really got a super even season. But we talk about dominating this weekend in qualifying. I mean, this is a Lewis Hamilton circuit. Let's say that first of all. It was before this weekend, five wins and I think four pole positions, something like that. His first win, his first pole, etc. Um, and he really showed it in qualifying, didn't he? I mean, he knew he needed to perform well here. And I mean, that lap, a new lap record as well, was just sizzling. Yeah. Oh, wow. I did not expect to see them in the 111s. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people were surprised. And, and while Vettel said he probably could have gone quicker, um, mm-hmm. I mean, let's let's face it, he, he did break into the 111s, but he was still three tenths off uh, mm-hmm. of Lewis. And, and that's... That's quite a gap. Yeah, and I mean, Hamilton, I mean, as much as there was, I think Sebastian Vettel pointed to a mistake, I think, in the second sector to account for one or two tenths. I mean, Hamilton never even really looked stressed on that lap. He's just such a natural around here at home immediately uh, that in some respects, even though we did miss out, as we'll talk about momentarily, on a, a fight for the lead, it seemed unlikely that anyone would be able to challenge Hamilton. He's in one of those grooves that he gets into where he just seems untouchable. Yeah, you've seen this You've seen this from, from the greats. Um, even Vettel in his day, uh, Schumacher, uh, Senna, they just seem to get into that zone where they really are untouchable. Uh, they, he just had that car hooked up. And uh, as you said, the, he likes this circuit. He's his first uh, win. Uh, again, great uh, performances here in the past. He likes this circuit. And uh, I think he'd be, he would have been disappointed had he not gotten pole. Yeah, absolutely. And especially so given that, and we have to talk about this even if briefly, he was uh, awarded by the Senna family with a Senna helmet for equaling Ayrton Senna's uh, all-time pole record. That's second in the all-time list, I think three behind Michael Schumacher. So he's going to break that pretty soon. But uh, a rare genuinely emotional moment for Lewis Hamilton, I think. I think it was it was touching for anyone who has been a fan of, of Formula One since the Senna days. Uh, anytime you see something like that, there's a certain amount of respect that um, you feel towards, uh, towards that legacy. And uh, to have something like Senna's helmet, obviously, uh, having been uh, a Senna fan, Lewis must have just... Um, that that must be his prized possession right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can only imagine so. I mean, the way he was clutching it for the entire rest of the day, he couldn't keep his eyes off it in the press conference, uh, even though that one was just the replica, obviously. I thought it was quite uh, worthwhile, they pointed out, obviously for insurance reasons. They weren't just going to give it to him in the middle of the, in the, middle of the circuit. They were going to ship it expressly to his house. But nonetheless, the, the meaning was there very much obvious. Very much so. Now, if we look ahead to that race, uh, which of course Hamilton went on to win, uh, completely unchallenged, there were reasons he was completely unchallenged and the first of all was well Max Verstappen didn't feature in the final classification because his car tragically retired but Verstappen leapt up the grid from uh, fifth place wasn't it uh, brushed past Sebastian Vettel on the way but what a statement from a, a man who has just said over the last days having a crappy year so far in Formula One yeah great start it just didn't end well for him <laughs> unfortunately we, we we didn't see him uh, continue because uh, of his uh, his issues uh, and sadly as you mentioned before uh, the incident may have robbed us uh, of a good battle between 
Hamilton and uh, Vettel. Now, we don't know what kind of pace either of them still had, but uh, um, having had uh, the issue and then pitting late, Vettel probably should have uh, pitted earlier to replace his, uh, his front wing. The strategy really played in for Ferrari at that point, and Vettel really uh, had an amazing, immense drive to get himself back into up to fourth. It was one of the curious things was that he picked up this front wing damage. It didn't immediately disintegrate, but it did later on. Uh, we had a safety car, of course, straight away on lap one for a crash between Science and Massa. But that's why Vettel says that he didn't notice there was damage because obviously at safety car speeds, you're not really using the maximum of the car. But nonetheless, don't you think it's a little bit strange that no one at Ferrari just saw him as he even passed the pits because he did a couple of laps behind the safety car and thought well we better change him under safety car conditions he had a whole lap where he might have lost minimum time but instead was demoted all the way to the back of the grid when he stopped on lap five yeah we we had this discussion last year when we when we did this uh (laughs) this call about the uh uh pending opening for strategist at ferrari (laughs) i I still don't understand how with the technology i mean even on television you see this i'm sure that the farm cameras Mm -hmm. have caught uh images of him you know or even just on the pit wall saying hey mate uh looks like there's a piece (laughs) of wing missing maybe you might want to come in you'd have thought so but they waited uh and as a result he did drop to 18 which meant He was almost certainly out of contention for the win, if not the podium. But as you said, uh, and we'll sort of cover this off throughout the course of this podcast, but an immense recovery drive. Just to put it into numbers, uh, he fell 29 seconds off the pace uh, when he made that stop on lap five. Just 29 seconds behind Hamilton in the lead. He took two stops in this race because they had nothing to lose and still ended up only 35 seconds behind Hamilton, who was in clear air the whole time. That, I mean, that's just immensely impressive for a, a man who had to pass pretty much every car to finish fourth. True, but we don't also don't know what pace Lewis might have had uh, in hand. Mm-hmm. So that that's gap true. might have been bigger, but he wasn't really being pushed by anyone. So, um, you know, save that. As, as he said at the end of the race, my engine is in very good shape. So he, he, <laughs> he, must, have, he must have had the wick turned fairly low Mm. in fact i think he just rolled his way home on the final lap just switched it off put it in neutral he was safe it was probably just under (laughs) curse it is it was a little bit like that uh we'll talk a little bit more about sebastian vettel and those final moments of the race a little bit later but there was of course one other man who typically you'd consider would be able to challenge hamilton he was in the same car it was valtteri bottas but he finished something like 20 seconds behind hamilton at the checkered flag they had alternative strategies but it seems like what undid bottas was this earlier stop on lap 23 for the soft tire rather than the super soft tire and and then he was stuck behind some traffic he definitely had his race uh, compromised there uh, i don't know about the selection on the soft tire whether that was a, a you know it worked out for daniel Maybe not so much for for Bottas, but he he did well. He still finished second. Um, He apparently had a a wicked uh, flat spot Mm -hmm. where it was so bad, in fact, that he couldn't see Mm -hmm. uh, and therefore had to to pit. So (laughs) probably not uh, the strategy that they were looking for. But uh, look, at the end of the day, it was was 1-2. He he may not have been able to, to really bother Lewis at all. 
So we'll call that a win-win. It was a little bit, I suppose, disappointing for Bottas, uh, even if he knew that the race was a little bit compromised and he didn't stand much of a chance in the strategic sense. But he's never been out-qualified or beaten, I think I'm right in saying, by a teammate at Canada. So as much as this is a, sort of a Hamilton circuit, it was shaping up to be a bit of a Bottas circuit. And I wonder how much he would have been thinking about that this weekend. I remember 2013 when he uh, qualified. I think he qualified third. Mm, I think so, yeah. Yeah, the smile on his face. I, I was standing outside beside him uh, in the paddock when they were doing the uh, the interviews, and he did not stop smiling the entire time. <laughs> so Canada is definitely, again, one of those circuits that uh, suits his driving style. It was not uh, part of the, uh, the plan uh, or the, the storyline, let's say, to have... Uh, Lewis Hamilton uh, out qualify and and uh, and win this. He's just he was just on it. And uh, Bottas, as good as as he is at the circuit, I think is just not as good as Lewis. Mm, difficult to believe too. And we talk about the amount of work Mercedes did between Monaco and Montreal to try and fix the issues they experienced in in Monte Carlo. That this is their first one two of the season, which is you know, considering the last three years we've had, that's that's incredible. Uh, absolutely, I mean, if, if anything, it's giving people hope that you know there is going to be competition, and uh, yeah. I like the fact that the people are taking points away from each other. And I, I mean, I said at the beginning of the season, as they do at the beginning of every season, <laughs> I, I'm not I'm not crazy about seeing the the walk away winner. Obviously, there are going to be dominant performances, but I, I think for the, for the fans and as a spectacle and as a sport, it's healthy to have that competition. So I'm, mm. I'm, I'm hoping that uh, Red Bull can do something to, to sneak a win. I'm hoping that uh, Kimi and uh, Vettel can also uh, challenge uh, Hamilton and Bottas. I'd like, to see, I'd like to see Valtteri win a few races this year. It's a long mm. season. We're just getting underway, and uh, there's still a lot of opportunity for a lot of people. Yeah. Now, we talk about uh, Red Bull getting into the mix, and we did say that momentarily Max Verstappen was uh, on for second place. Ricardo, Daniel Ricardo, eventually finished on the podium. But, of course, that all came to pass because Kimi Raikkonen, or partly because Kimi Raikkonen, really suffered a bad start, as did Vettel in some respects, but more so Raikkonen dropped down to sixth, so be behind, obviously, both Mercedes, both Red Bull cars and his teammate. Uh, and thereafter had, unfortunately, another kind of middling Raikkonen race. I mean, he had such a good round in, in Monaco, and we thought maybe this was him coming back, but just was off the pace of Vettel. Obviously, you had that massive comeback drive and couldn't even find a, a way past uh, Sergio Perez and later yeah, Esteban Those, those Force Indias were uh, were definitely a force this weekend. Uh, Kimi, as I understand it, is still using the old uh, clutch paddles on his mm -hmm. uh, steering wheel, and maybe it's time he, he looks at uh, the newer ones, although they didn't seem to do much for Vettel. But um, I'm just wondering now if, uh, if Kimi... I don't know that he's necessarily lost the love but I think he's definitely feeling some pressure and uh, perhaps doesn't have the warm and fuzzies um, you know back at Ferrari as, as uh, you know history may be repeating itself mm -hmm. uh, you'd be yeah it'd be interesting to see which way the of course contract decision goes I feel like we've been talking about it almost every week uh, last week we thought oh maybe he'll get a renewal after all but Who's to say at this point in time? And of course, it depends who is available. But for Senior in particular, they got themselves into this fight for the top five very early on. 
Um, there was a, an interesting little strategic exchange between uh, Daniel Ricardo, Sergio Perez, and Kimi Raikkonen, who all tried to undercut or overcut each other, and every one of them failed. <laughs> Kimi Raikkonen tried to undercut first, wasn't close enough. Daniel Ricardo then covered him off, didn't really have to, he was far enough ahead. Then Perez had an opportunity to overcut by staying out longer, and just didn't really do anything with it. Did the same lap times, and then they just all ended up in exactly the same order, which was interesting to see that neither the undercut nor the overcut, uh, just sort of inherent in themselves, had much of an effect here. It was a fruitless exchange of <laughs> strategies there. So these undercuts and overcuts only really work if you're able to pump in those times. Mm-hmm. We saw it in the past with, well, with Lewis, but in particular, I keep remembering uh, Schumacher you know, Ross Braun saying, listen, you, you've got to pull out uh, three-tenths uh, uh, per lap in mm-hmm. the next six laps in order to make this work, and, and he would be able to do that. And I don't think these strategies work unless you're able to really mm-hmm. put in those times. Yeah, I think that's certainly fair to say. Uh, we sort of saw a little bit of that in Monaco where, uh, well, for a whole bunch of reasons, Kimi Raikkonen wasn't able to, but Sebastian Vettel was. And none of those cars were able to here, which also talked a little bit about how the tyres on the most part didn't have a huge performance disparity. The soft was a little bit slower, but they all sort of endured more or less, which uh, I think speaks to, has been talking about for a couple of weeks, the relative well durability or too hardness, let's say, of the Pirelli tyres, which... It's interesting because we're not seeing quite as much of that strategic variation as we did last year, are we? I mean, this year it was more or less, it was one stop, which is not unusual for Canada, but pretty much the same tyres for everybody. Yeah, so let's take a look at the stints. So the Ultrasofts, uh, Van Dorn did 45 laps. Mm-hmm. On the Supersofts, Grosjean did 68 laps, and Ricardo mm-hmm. did uh, 52 laps on the Softs. The fastest lap time on the softs was one as was a one sixteen one six five. The super softs was a one fifteen nine seven nine, and the ultra softs was a one sixteen thirty seven, which was uh, Hamilton. So overall, mm-hmm. really, there isn't a heck of a lot of uh, of difference between in, in terms of pace or really the durability. Which is sort of an interesting position we find ourselves in with Pirelli, because on the one hand, half the time people are saying, oh, you know, there's too much of a gap in performance between these tyres. No one wants to use, you know, X tyre or Y tyre. Then we talk about, oh, they, they don't last long enough. They're not good enough. And now we sort of go back to in that direction. And now people are going, well, it's not a lot going on with these tyres. They're a little bit boring. You just can't win in Formula One, can you? No, I, I have to say the, the one thing that I love most about these tyres are the sheer size. Mm, yes, we can all agree on that. <laughs> However, it does it does pose a problem when overtaking. Yeah, well, as uh, old mate Jensen Button found out in Monaco. <laughs> I, I, yeah, exactly. I suspect that uh, because of the, uh, the narrow uh, grid in Canada, there might have been fewer incidents, let's say, if the tires were a little bit thinner. But uh, boy, do I ever love the, the look of these cars with these tires. Yeah, especially, I mean, we talked about, and I was loathe to admit to the idea that Formula One needs that nostalgia thing. It's been what we've been talking about for years now in Formula One. We've got to go back to the so-called good old days. But when you look at one of these cars from behind, they really do conjure up this great iconic Formula One imagery, don't they? The front is sort of whatever we can take or leave the front, but the back of the cars with the lower wings and the wider tyres is just... I mean, that is Formula One now, isn't it? And the sparks. Let's Ah. not leave out the sparks. Yeah, it's all come together nicely, which is sometimes a little bit shocking for Formula One, given the way it makes decisions, but... 
I mean, we'll take it. Certainly we'll take it. You talked about the narrow uh, front straight in the grid. Eventually, when Sebastian Vettel made up all that time and approached those Force India cars, and we'll talk about the battle they had uh, in a moment, because perhaps they shouldn't have been in that position to be overtaken by Sebastian Vettel. Uh, he did this great three-wide maneuver on Esteban Ocon into the first turn, which put at massive risk the whole comeback. Had one of them understeered a little bit, or had Ocon decided not to go wide at that corner, uh, a fan, probably the move of the race, perhaps. Oh my lord! On the on the dirty side, mm. with little grip, you could see how nervous he was. Uh, that cockpit was was a nervous <laughs> place to be. The 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 steering input, the uh, adjustments left to right, real quick. Um, I was I was hoping that he wasn't going to take everyone out, <laughs> but it ended up it ended up working out. It was brilliant, but very risky. And uh, reality is, if we don't make those moves. We're not doing our job. I mean, you see a gap, you go for it. And I think, I mean, many people have quoted Senna saying, if, if you see a gap and you don't go for yes. it, you're no longer considered a racing driver. And, and I think mm-hmm. there's some truth to that. Um, mm. You know, Vettel's trying to do his best to mitigate the, uh, the loss of points and, uh, you know, leading the championship. It, it must be a very difficult position because Ferrari has not been competitive up until this year. Uh, really to the point where, where, hey, leading both championships uh, up until Canada. And uh, you have to say, if he, if he doesn't try something, I, I don't think that's really in his fiber. Yeah, I think so. And certainly, uh, I like to think back occasionally to those early days at Red Bull Racing where people used to accuse him of not being able to overtake. He's had plenty of races where he's disproved that, but yet another one where he really is able to put on the moves that can, well, it didn't win him the race, but it won him a position that few people thought were possible after that first lap. But it was made possible as well by the Force India cars. I mean, one of them was going to be overtaken at a minimum, but there was an opportunity perhaps for one of them to finish on the podium in one of the more interesting strategic uh, battles, let's say, in the field because Esteban Ocon had stayed out for quite a while on those ultra softs. He'd essentially done what Hamilton did 32 laps before changing to the super soft. Whereas Perez was caught up in that fruitless strategic battle and stopped on 19 uh, lap 19 yet force India. They thought about swapping them. They thought about giving uh, Esteban Ocon the opportunity to fulfill his strategy and perhaps pass Daniel Ricciardo, but really lacked someone to tell Perez to move aside. This reminds me of arguing with my wife. <laughs> you, you can never be right. Okay, you. <laughs> if you think about it, uh, people say, look, leave team orders out of it. However, for the longest time, we've always been saying F1 is a team sport. If it is truly a team sport, team orders do come into play. And if you look at... Does Ocon have the pace? Well, clearly Perez was struggling. He thought he might be able to do something. Ocon looked quicker. Maybe that definitive voice needed to be heard. Maybe someone should have said, look, you've had your chance for 10 laps. Move over. Let this kid go at it. Mm-hmm. I understand. You have to go back and forth, and you have to keep your drivers happy. But at some point, mm. you know, as you said, they might have been able to do something more. Uh, maybe not have uh, Vettel overtake both of them, had they just made that move a little bit earlier. I think they waited too long and they should have been more firm. Part of the reason is that Force India is so rarely in a situation where it's having to do this sort of thing that perhaps they're just a little bit inexperienced. Plus, Sergio Perez obviously been around for quite a while at Force India. Uh, Some people were saying that, you know, he does bring a lot of money to Force India, but 
you know, on the other hand, uh, and I think VJ Malia in a, well, I don't want to say Trump-esque, it's only because it was on Twitter, he tweeted that uh, they're going to review the way they work best for the team uh, at Four Senior in the future, which is, I suppose, something they're going to have to think about this year if they really want to consolidate that fourth place in the championship, if not potentially higher, if Red Bull Racing's reliability continues to be poor. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, let's face it, Ocon is a good little driver. Mm. He's going to challenge uh, Sergio. They seem they both seem pretty comfortable in the cars. It's a matter of who's going to get the most points. And at that point, mm. a decision has to be made and someone's going to have to probably do something they don't want to do by moving aside. But at the end, again, if it's going to be considered a team sport, you have to do what's best for the team. And we'll wait and see how that team balance plays out. And we note as well that potentially Sergio Perez is uh, in his CV, let's say, trying to get to Ferrari next season. So he's obviously got an extra bit of onus to not be defeated by his teammate to keep his stock up. But if we look to other stories that happen in the Canadian Grand Prix, Fernando Alonso was on to score a point. The first point of the year for McLaren it's worst ever start to a season which I feel like we've said for the last three seasons or two seasons uh it failed he had a great moment in the in the crowd he went and said hello to everybody in the grandstand he said he almost wasn't allowed to leave uh but this weekend seems to have really been a turn in this McLaren Honda relationship doesn't it the language being used now uh by Fernando by team principals uh is really suggesting this is not going to end well I don't even know where to start. Uh, I think <laughs> I think McLaren was holding on to this idea of of years gone by, where they achieved this greatness with Senna and the Honda and McLaren together. And uh, I mean, it was such a beautiful story. It, it, you know, we're into new chapters now. It's not working. After three years, it appears that there has been not enough development, not enough progress. And uh, nothing but frustration. And this is definitely the start of what I would consider the divorce period. I mean, the honeymoon was over two years ago. And, uh, you know, the, this marriage isn't working out. And uh, it's, it's time. Like, I, I, I've said this before. Uh, from experience, divorce is worth it. <laughs> and uh, it, it, it might be the only way that McLaren can, uh, can justify. Now, also, let's understand that there's more to this than just an engine deal. There's a lot of money that Honda's bringing. That $100 million is not going to be easy to make up, especially with the lack of sponsorship that McLaren currently has. And uh, I'm, sure, I'm sure should they have a little Mercedes booty call, <laughs> they might actually gain some points and, uh, and start working towards uh, regaining some of that, that money. But $100 million is not easy to come by. No. I mean, I've tried and I couldn't find it, which is, you know, I continue to live. But McLaren is a, a high-functioning, high-money-demanding company. And they need that kind of money to continue. Interesting, uh, we said, uh, Fernando Alonso, you know, he's been stepping up his language. He says, now, if we're not winning by September, then I'll probably leave. They're not going to be winning by September. Is this he, uh, a sign he will probably leave? Or do you think this is him saying... Or, or saying in his way, I suppose, that he feels McLaren will be ending that Honda relationship and therefore will continue to have faith in McLaren as a team just powered by another engine for 2018. This uh, McLaren and Fernando uh, relationship has, has not... It wasn't good at the beginning, at the first time around, and it doesn't seem to be working very well now. I mean, he's... Let's say, you know, he's a very good driver. He's probably one of the best on the grid. He's, he's driving the wheels off that car. No one can fault him for saying that, um, you know, he's, he's unhappy. He seems to be doing everything right, but I can't blame him. Uh, maybe, maybe this is, hey, I've got the feelers out there. 
you know, if you're looking to change swap drivers, I'm going to be available next year. Because clearly, in September, as you said, Honda will not be winning. Unless we're talking the uh, further raft races, this is not going any further. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if that, that qualified in his conditions, I think, for that win. We can't end this podcast without talking about... Uh, one man, I didn't think we'd have much cause to talk about this weekend, but nonetheless, he impressed. And the first weekend he's done, so it's Lance Stroll. His first home race as a Formula 1 driver, finished ninth, scored two points, his first points of his Formula 1 career. Uh, in what was, I think for the first time, a really genuinely impressive drive, even if he qualified predictably poorly. Uh, how was he received for his home race? Oh, there was a lot of uh, uh, buzz about having a, a Canadian driver back in Formula 1. Um, obviously does not carry the Villeneuve name, which is, uh, which is fine, but just having someone to say, this is our home race. It, it was, uh, there was a lot of, uh, uh, visibility to him, even within the city. And, uh, his performance was actually quite mature. He, he kept it together, uh, didn't make any stupid moves. Uh, not that he, let's say, have made those before, but he deserved to have, a good solid race and uh he he seemed to have his head about him he mentioned you know he waited for overtakes uh not trying to rush it just trying to run his race and it was great to see him finally get some points at home nonetheless so i'm, I'm happy to see him develop um uh, i'd like to see you know he's obviously not not a max verstappen he doesn't have that same uh, aggressive uh, style and uh, and may never may never be that personality but he, he was very happy at the end of the race just to have finished and uh, in the points nonetheless so and we do look forward to seeing how he does develop and it must be said yeah this was not a, a particularly unusual or clever strategic play from Williams it really just relied on Stroll getting the maximum out of a car that is normally very good in Canada and he did it. I mean, sure, they would have liked to have scored more points, but then Felipe Massa was wiped out at the first lap, so they could only do what they got. But a very impressive race and a home race for him. Uh, it was a great Canadian Grand Prix, I think. Certainly plenty to talk about. Certainly has furthered this excellent championship narrative we've been engaged in so far this season. It's been a pleasure to look back on it with you, Ernie. It has been my pleasure. Thank you very much. That was the strategy report for the 2017 Canadian Grand Prix. If you want to read more about the strategy from this week's race, go to f1strategyreport.com for the pit stop stats, tyre data and Jack Leslie's write-up of all the action from Montreal. The strategy report is powered by the 2017 edition of Apex Race Manager, which is the number one new racing game in Germany, Italy and Australia. You can download Apex Race Manager for free for iOS and Android devices. My name's Michael Aminato. You can find me at Michael Aminato on Twitter, and I'll catch you in two weeks' time, when I'll probably be less nasally, for the Azerbaijan Grand Prix.